from a novel about a fantastical journey through post-Roman Britain to a guide to the trillions of microbes living in your body, the FT brings you the year in books. I'm Sally Davies, the digital editor of The Weekend FT, and I invited our correspondents to talk about and read from their favourite books of 2015, spanning economics, fiction, music, crime and more. Keep an eye out for their written recommendations and enjoy. Like a socialist planner, the economist thus believes that he can accomplish great feats because he supposed that he has finally uncovered... I have selected the economics book of the year. I am Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, and my book is Adair Turner's Between Debt and the Devil, Money, Credit and Fixing Global Finance. The financial crisis is still very much with us and it was transformative for our economies, but also for the way we think about economics. And Adair Turner has, I think, provided the most comprehensive and interesting view of what's wrong with economics. I'm going to read the end of the book, and it summarizes the arguments of Adair Turner extremely clearly. The Fatal Conceit and a Choice of Imperfections Underlying the key failures of pre-crisis economics were common methodological roots, an attraction to argument by axiom and to apparently complete and certain models, and a willingness to ignore real-world complexities. Theory, in turn, appeared to support universally applicable policy rules. Financial liberalisation was beneficial, whether applied to equity or debt markets, to developed or emerging economies, and to domestic markets or international capital flows. And central banks could ensure macroeconomic stability, provided they used interest rate policies to pursue clear inflation targets. In that search for certainty and rules, paradoxically, neoclassical orthodoxy mimicked the very faults that had previously affected its intellectual polar opposite, the ideology of socialist planning. Friedrich Hayek argued that there was a fatal conceit in socialist planning that made it not only undesirable, but also quite impossible. It assumed that it was possible for planning authorities to gain such comprehensive knowledge of both present conditions and future developments as to allow mathematically precise optimization. But for Hayek, effective economic organization and progress depended on the use of knowledge which is not given to anyone in its totality and is inherently imperfect. No precisely rational mathematical plan for the whole economy is therefore possible. And in its absence, economic and social progress is best achieved through processes of market-based exploration that are inherently imperfect and changing over time. The pre-crisis orthodoxy suffered from not just a similar, but in some senses the very same conceit, For the idea that free markets will always deliver optimal results and that financial stability will be achieved provided central banks pursue clear targets with predictable rules rests on the assumption that the future can be described by precise mathematical models and that rational human beings maximize their utility on the basis of rational expectations. As Roman Friedman and Michael Goldberg argue, a hubristic overconfidence follows in which, and I quote, like a socialist planner, the economist thus believes 
that he can accomplish great feats, because he supposed that he has finally uncovered the fully determined mechanism which drives market outcomes, and that his model adequately captures how market participants think about the future. I'm selecting my novel of the year. I'm Lorian Kite, the FT's books editor. The book I'd like to talk about is The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. This is a fascinating book. It tells the story of an elderly couple, Axel and Beatrice, who set off across the Dark Ages Britain in search of their lost son. It's probably around the 6th century, somewhere between the departure of the Romans and the Anglo-Saxon conquest. Both of them suffer from failing memory, and, and pretty soon you become aware that this is a generalised condition. It, ha- it had quite a mixed response at the time. Obviously, Ishiguro was one of our greatest novelists, but, but a lot of critics objected to the presence of dragons, ogres, pixies in this book. Some of the most critical responses came from fantasy authors themselves, who seemed to object to a literary novelist entering their territory. I think actually it's a very characteristic Ishiguro novel. The themes are quite familiar ones from his other books. Historical memory, the way that repressed events in a nation's past can suddenly erupt. I was also struck by the parallels with his last novel, Never Let Me Go, a novel that told the story of cloned children who are brought up to a fairly certain fate. Young people who who know their time is limited and the novel explores how this affects them and how love survives against this backdrop. In The Buried Giant, you have a couple at the end of their life, and what the two novels share is that the characters, they won't let go of the idea that their love is so strong that they can, if not exactly overcome death, then at least win some concessions from it. I'm going to read from the very beginning of The Buried Giant that really sets it up. You would have searched for a long time for the sort of winding lane or tranquil meadow for which England later became celebrated. There were instead miles of desolate, uncultivated land, here and there rough-hewn paths over craggy hills or bleak moorland. Most of the roads left by the Romans would by then have become broken or overgrown, often fading into wilderness. Icy fogs hung over rivers and marshes, serving all too well the ogres, that were then still native to this land. The people who lived nearby, one wonders what desperation led them to settle in such gloomy spots, might well have feared these creatures, whose panting breaths could be heard long before their deformed figures emerged from the mist. But such monsters were not cause for astonishment. People then would have regarded them as everyday hazards, and in those days there was so much else to worry about. How to get food out of the hard ground how not to run out of firewood, how to stop the sickness that could kill a dozen pigs in a single day and produce green rashes on the cheeks of children. In any case, ogres were not so bad, providing one did not provoke them. One had to accept that every so often, perhaps following some obscure dispute in their ranks, a creature would come blundering into a village in a terrible rage, and despite shouts and brandishings of weapons, rampage about, injuring anyone slow to move out of its path or that every so often an ogre might carry off a child into the mist. The people of the day had to be philosophical about such outrages. In one such area on the edge of a vast bog, in the shadow of some jagged hills, lived an elderly couple, Axel and Beatrice. Perhaps these were not their exact or full names, but for ease this is how we will refer to them. I would say this couple lived an isolated life, 
But in those days, few were isolated in any sense we would understand. For warmth and protection, the villagers lived in shelters. Many of them dug deep into the hillside, connecting one to the other by underground passages and covered corridors. Our elderly couple lived within one such sprawling warren. Building would be too grand a word. With roughly 60 other villagers... If you came out of their warren and walked for twenty minutes around the hill, you would have reached the next settlement, and to your eyes this one would have seemed identical to the first. But to the inhabitants themselves there would have been many distinguishing details of which they would have been proud or ashamed. I've chosen a crime novel this year by Dion Mayer called Icarus. I'm Barry Forshaw. I'm the FT's crime reviewer. Dan Mayer writes in Afrikaans, and over a series of books, he's been presenting as rich and varied and interesting and nuanced a picture of South Africa as any literary novelist. As, as well as being terrific, rather violent crime novels, these are pictures that show the social divisions in post-apartheid South Africa, and they've got this terrific hero, Captain Benny Greasel, who may put people off by being told that he's a recovering alcoholic and is always struggling with the bottle. Nevertheless, Dion Mayer manages to avoid that being a cliché. He somehow keeps that fresh and, and interesting. And Icarus is possibly the best book in the, in the sequence yet. In Icarus, yet again, Benny Greasel, Captain Benny Greasel, is struggling with his addiction and his addictive personality, which is alcohol. And all it takes with him is some unfortunate incident which happens with the death of a colleague that pushes him back over the edge again. He has a major case which he has to deal with, but yet again he's fallen off the wagon, and this is the passage I'm reading. At the end of the third glass, Greasel's physical pains began to dissipate. The pain in his arm, the pain in his side, the dull ache of the bullet wounds, now six months old, from when they'd shot Colonel Zola Neati, dead but not Benny. The pain this morning, stoked by the stormy weather, had flared up into a fiercely throbbing memory of all that. And now, here he sat, beginning to complimate his fourth double. He had known the drinking was close. Doc Marcusen, his sponsor at Alcoholics Anonymous for years, had also seen it coming. I know those glassy eyes, Benny. Confront the desire. When last were you at an AA meeting? Go and talk to the shrink again. Get your head right. He didn't want to go back to the shrink. In the first place, they'd forced him to have therapy after the shooting. In the second place, he had completed the process against his will. And in the third place, psychologists didn't know a damn thing. They sat in their little annoyingly decorated offices, carefully designed to make frightened, unstable people feel cosy and at home with a box of tissues positioned like a silent insult, and the teddy bear sitting on the windowsill. A teddy bear in the office of a shrink who treated policemen. Oh, they were so full of big words and book knowledge, but had any of them stood beside a mutilated body time and again and again and again, or lain and watched how the blood spurted and dribbled and dripped, as you knew for certain you were going to die, lying there with your colleague, and there was nothing you could do to save him. I'm selecting my business book of the year. I'm Andrew Hill, management editor. So uh, the book I've picked is How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt. 
which is a tale of how the music industry had a near-death experience in the 1990s and 2000s as the whole file-sharing MP3 experience came in. Piracy is a big part of it, but Wit has done a great job, I think, of explaining this history through various characters, including at the very top of the tree, Doug Morris, who was head of Universal Music and later uh, Sony Music, Uh, And at the bottom of the tree, people like the man in the Universal Music CD plant in uh, the Midwest who was copying files, copying CDs that he had smuggled out of the plant. And it's a very, very colourful explanation of how these two apparently distant worlds, the great tycoon at the top and the humdrum workers at the bottom, reverse roles with as much organisation being put into the piracy part uh, as had previously been put into the establishment of the whole company. So this is a passage from How Music Got Free about the underworld of music piracy in the late 90s and the so-called scene where the pirates were working. And the leadership of this scene, the people who were coordinating a network of, of pirates of various sorts, from music journalists through to people working in CD pressing plants, uh, all had code names, which the book doesn't reveal who they actually are in most cases until near the end. Havoc was a legend in scene circles. He worked at a commercial radio station somewhere in Canada. He had access. Although he never revealed his real name, He would sometimes share backstage pictures of himself at concerts, his arms draped around the shoulders of famous musicians. For a while, he had been the group's best asset, sourcing dozens of leaks, often directly from the unsuspecting hands of the artists themselves. But then, in early 1999, Havoc abruptly stepped away. He never gave a reason why. After some discussion, leadership passed to another member who went by the name of Al Capone, Capone had discovered the scene at the age of 13 after being banned from AOL for trolling. He'd established himself by making online friends in Europe, then arbitraging offset transatlantic launch dates to source pre-release albums. But his reign at the top was short. Capone was undisciplined, and under his leadership the group ballooned in membership to more than 100 members violating basic principles of scene security. After a few tumultuous months, Capone gave up his duties, claiming that he was too busy to lead the group. In reality, he'd just turned 17 and was moving out of his parents' house. The mantle finally passed to a permanent presence. This was Callie, who was selected through what amounted to an executive search committee. Callie had not previously been an especially visible member of the group. Unlike Havoc, he did not have insider access. But unlike Capone, he never claimed to. What he did have was scene cred. For years, Callie had been a member of another scene group, a games-cracking crew named Fairlight, and his exploits there were celebrated. Also, he was old enough to vote. Callie's leadership brought a kind of military discipline to the group. He was a natural spymaster, a master of surveillance and infiltration, the carla of music piracy. He read Billboard like a racing form and used it to untangle the confusing web of corporate acquisitions and pressing agreements that determined what CDs would be manufactured, where and when. Once this map of the distribution channels was charted, he began an aggressive campaign of recruitment, patiently building a network of moles that would, over the next eight years, manage to burrow into the supply chains of every major music label. 
I've selected the poetry collection for our Books of the Year special. My name's Maria Crawford and I work on the FT Arts Desk. The ultimate poetry book of the year is actually two. It's a two-volume edition of the poems of T.S. Eliot, edited by Christopher Ricks and Jim McHugh. Though to say edited by Christopher Ricks is a huge understatement. This is a meeting of the most important poet of the 20th century and one of our greatest literary academics, and it's really an exercise in immense generosity. This is the ripe fruit of years of rich, close reading by Ricks. As you flick from poem to annotation and back again to reread the poem, for me, it brought me back to all those years of luxuriously poring over texts in postgraduate seminars, and it really reminded me of how much carefully wrought language, especially in the form of poetry, merits such dedicated attention. One of the uncollected poems in the volume, written while Eliot was an undergraduate, is called On a Portrait. Among a crowd of tenuous dreams, unknown to us of restless brain and weary feet, forever hurrying up and down the street, she stands at evening in the room alone. Not like a tranquil goddess carved of stone, but evanescent, as if one should meet a pensive lamia in some wood retreat, an immaterial fancy of one's own. No meditations glad or ominous disturb her lips or move the slender hands. Her dark eyes keep their secrets hid from us. Beyond the circle of our thought she stands. The parrot on his bar, a silent spy, regards her with a patient, curious eye. Having read the poem, when we flick forward to Rix's commentary, the first thing he does is leave us in no doubt that this is a poem about modernity. The restless brain, weary feet forever hurrying up and down, the crowd of that changing society that Eliot was part of. It's in stark contrast to the inspiration for the poem, which Rix also tells us, which is the Manet portrait La Dame au Perroquet. It's a very beautiful, striking portrait of a woman standing full length in pale pink silks with a parrot alongside her on a perch, staring. And when you go back and read the poem, having read Rix's criticism, it's not diminished by too much information. It's not over-understood. It's enlightening. It's insightful. And that's just one of hundreds of examples of Rix's generosity in this work. So my name is Tony Barber. I'm the Financial Times Europe editor. And I've been asked to choose a book in the history section for the books of the year. And the book I've chosen is called Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago. And it's by Gillian O'Brien, who is a historian at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. And I've chosen the book for four reasons. The first is that I'm particularly attracted to history books that 
pick up on an episode from the past that may have been very well known at the time and for a short period thereafter, but for one reason or another faded out of uh, people's awareness as the decades passed. And this is what Gillian O'Brien has done with the story of what was at the time a a scandalous, very well-known murder case uh, in Chicago in the late 1880s. The second reason I chose the book is that I have a a personal love for the city of Chicago, which goes back a long time. Uh, I first, I think, became aware of Chicago uh, through that uh, wonderful Billy Wilder movie from 1974, The Front Page. I then was fortunate enough to live in Chicago in the 1980s, and I've, I've never lost my fascination for this city of such diversity and energy. And this is something that Gillian O'Brien captures in her book as well, describing the city as it expands tremendously fast in the second half of the 19th century with immigrants from all over different parts of Europe, including Ireland. The third reason is that uh, I believe strongly that history should be accessible to the general reader, the interested reader, someone who wants to know about the past but wants to read about it in a way that's not written purely for specialist historians. And there's no doubt that Gillian O'Brien has achieved that in her book. The fourth and final reason is that history nevertheless must rest on a basis of good scholarship. And that's what Gillian O'Brien has also achieved here by conducting thorough research in archives throughout the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, uh, London, Dublin, and it's a very fine history book indeed. The passage I want to read concerns one of the individuals who was closely involved in the murder case, the murder of the respected Irish doctor P.H. Cronin, and here it is. In the spring of 1873, a short, dapper man with piercing and magnetic eyes stepped off the train into the charred, scarred streets of Chicago. Dressed in his trademark black suit, complete with cowboy boots and pearl-handled pistol, Alexander Sullivan was trying to rebuild himself and his reputation, much like the city itself. Huge swathes of Chicago had been destroyed by the Great Fire of 1873 that began at the back of DeCoven Street on the west side, leapt the Chicago River, and travelled north as far as Fullerton Avenue in Lincoln Park. For a day and a half the fire had raged, and when it was over, little remained of the city centre apart from the limestone water tower on Michigan Avenue, then Pine Street, and Malone D. Ogden's residence on West Walton Street. An estimated 300 people had died, 18,000 buildings had been reduced to glowing embers, and almost a third of the city's population had lost their homes. Faced with disaster, the citizens of Chicago rallied, and as soon as land was cleared of the smoking debris, new, bigger, better, taller buildings rose to replace the old. Despite the depression that gripped much of the United States in the early 1870s, By June 1873, the city was sufficiently resurgent to host a jubilee week to celebrate the rebuilding. Chicago began to rival and then to overtake the expansion of New York, Boston and Philadelphia. Within 20 years of the Great Fire, the city boasted the first skyscrapers and the fastest growing population in the country. 
I'm Clive Cookson, Science Editor at the Financial Times, and I'm selecting my Science Book of the Year, The Diet Myth, The Real Science Behind What We Eat, by Tim Spector. This book picks up on one of the scientific and medical themes of the year, indeed of the decade, which is the microbiome. The microbiome is billions, no trillions, I think about a hundred trillion little microbes that live in our bodies and particularly in our guts. And over the last few years, scientists have come to appreciate how important they are. They aren't just passengers in our bodies. They play a key role in our health and in disease. Tim Spector does a lot of experimenting with himself he runs the British Gut Project, and anyone can send a sample in. I won't go into details and get a full readout of their microbiome. Tim Spector's done that many times to see the influence of different foods, from salads and greens to meats to fruits to nuts. And in the end, he comes up in a very scientific way with perhaps the obvious conclusion. It's Variety, variety, variety. I'll read the conclusion of the book. This book is about dispelling diet myths and arbitrary rules. I've tried not to replace them with new rules or restrictions, but rather with knowledge. You won't go wrong if you just treat your own microbes like you treat your own garden. Give them plenty of fertiliser, prebiotics, fibre and nutrients... Plant new seeds regularly in the shape of probiotics and new foods. Give the soil an occasional rest by fasting. Experiment, but avoid poisoning your microbiotic garden with preservatives, antiseptic mouthwashes, antibiotics, junk food and sugar. These treatments will maximise the diversity of the species that flourish, producing the greatest range of nutrients. In this way, your personal garden will cope better with the occasional floods or droughts or invasions of toxic weeds, feasts and famines, infections and cancers. After riding the storm and inevitably suffering a few casualties, the range and balance of your gut flora will allow everything to regrow even more robustly, so allowing you and your microbes to stay healthy. Rather than thinking of your body as a temple, thinking of it as this precious garden. Although we still have much to learn, my hunch is that diversity is the key. I'm Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, the FT's pop critic, and I've chosen as my music book of the year Patti Smith's M-Train. M-Train is the sequel to Patti Smith's memoir Just Kids, and it opens with a rather unpromising sentence, it's not so easy writing about nothing. To borrow a term from rock music, the difficult second album syndrome appears to have become difficult second memoir syndrome for Smith. However, the book is extremely entertaining. It's strung together from a series of uh, digressive reminiscences. The M train of the title refers to a sort of train of thought unspooling. These thoughts tend to be about books and reading, for his, she is an immensely voracious reader with a 
set of heroes who range from Jean Genet to William Burroughs, outlaw writers mainly. And then there is also a lot about her own writing, of course, because she began as a poet before becoming a rock singer in the 1970s. And there are also a series of accounts of her marriage to Fred Sonic Smith, who was the guitarist with the group The MC5, who dominates this book, if you like, in a way that her friendship with the photographer Robert Mapplethorpe did her previous book, Just Kids. In the book, Smith portrays herself as a sort of solitary figure who suffers from what she describes as a a light, lingering malaise, a sort of melancholia that comes over her. It's a melancholia which sounds rather like that which afflicts the writer W.G. Siebold, who, of course, is among those whom she cites as a sort of literary hero. W.G. Siebold walked off his melancholia by going on huge, long rambles, such as along the Suffolk coastline. In Smith's case, she works her way through her melancholia by coming up with all of these different memories, memories of going to Reykjavik and meeting the chess player Bobby Fischer, for instance, or of searching for a prison in French Guiana, which Jean Genet was particularly fascinated about in order to collect a piece of its stone to send to him via her friend, Burroughs. All of these are related in a, in a very charming and insightful and amusing fashion. And uh, I'm going to read one particular chapter called Clock with No Hands, and it is about the very concept of time about which she writes so well in this very interesting and highly readable book. I closed my notebook and sat in the cafe thinking about real time. Is it time uninterrupted? Only the present comprehended. Are our thoughts nothing but passing trains, no stops, devoid of dimension, whizzing by massive posters with the repeating images, catching a fragment from a window seat, yet another fragment from the next identical frame? If I write in the present, yet digress, is that still real time? Real time, I reasoned, cannot be divided into sections like numbers on the face of a clock. If I write about the past as I simultaneously dwell in the present, am I still in real time? Perhaps there is no past or future, only the perpetual present that contains this trinity of memory. I looked out into the street and noticed the light changing. Perhaps the sun had slipped behind a cloud. Perhaps time had slipped away. Fred and I had no specific time frame. In 1979, we lived at the Book Cadillac Hotel in downtown Detroit. We lived around the clock, moving through the days and nights with little regard for time. We would stay up until dawn, talking, then sleep until nightfall. When we awoke, we'd search for 24-hour diners or stop and mill around Art Van's furniture outlet that opened at midnight and served free coffee and powdered doughnuts. Sometimes we'd just drive aimlessly and stop before the sun rose at some motel in a place like Port Huron or Saginaw and sleep all day. Fred loved the arcade bar that was close to our hotel, it opened in the morning, a 30s-style bar with a few booths, a grill, and a large railway clock with no hands. There was no time, real or otherwise, at the arcade, and we could sit for hours with a handful of stragglers, spinning words or content within commiserating silence. That's it for the FT's Books of 2015. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy reading. Thanks also to all the correspondents for their contributions. I'm Sally Davies, the digital editor of The Weekend FT in London.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.